Well, this is three areas of ministry mastery. Uh, lesson one, master yourself. And we're going to take a look at this for the next three Sunday schools. I don't want us to think that just because you're not a preacher doesn't mean you're not called to ministry. There, there is the ministry of helps that everybody's called to. There's the workplace ministry. There's the ministry of reconciliation. We're all called to minister and serve. There is the fivefold ministry. And even if you're not in the fivefold ministry, that is the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, you're still called to be a good teacher and a good preacher to win your neighbor, to evangelize, to preach in the jail, to teach a Sunday school. So you're all called to some form of ministry. We don't want to say others are more important than some. They're all equal. They all have a reward for their labor. Some sow, some water, God gives the increase. So don't read this and say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a preacher, I'm not a pastor, I'm not an evangelist, I'm not a missionary. This applies to you. It's in the Bible. It applies to you. So we wrote these lessons uh, just seeing some new things and always endeavoring to keep raising the standard, to keep getting better and better and better. As I like to marvel at the Olympics, every time the Olympics roll around, everybody's aiming to break the world record. And nobody looks at that world record and says, it'll never fall. Everybody says, I'm going to make it fall. And yet in the church, if we're not careful, we say, ah, I could never be better. And I don't understand why that, why that, that poverty mindset's in the church, but it's not in the worldly Olympics. Every time we have the Olympics, records fall. They push the envelope. They raise the standard. They jump higher. They swim faster. They run further. Uh, and yet at the church, it seems like in the West, the church is slowly lowering the standard. It's like the church is less powerful, less holy, less righteous now than it was 25 years ago. Should not be the case. So we go through, and I study these scriptures, finding a way to raise the standard so we can do things better, quicker, faster, for more of the Lord's glory. Colossians 4.17, and say to Archippus, here's what Paul said. Archippus was at the Colossae church. He had a special word spoken just to him by the Spirit of God through this epistle. This was the word to Archippus. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you fulfill it or that you bring to realization, that you complete it, you fill to the brim. That is a word for every one of us. You could put your name in there. Say to Miss Patty, say to Miss Valerie, say to Philip, say to Mr. Earl, uh, say to Miss Wanda, take heed to the ministry which the Lord has given you that you fulfill it. You fill it up to the brim. So I guess the first question is figuring out what your ministry is. Around here, we don't exalt the fivefold over anybody else. The church has kind of gone in those cycles where the fivefold were the premier. They were like the superstars. They were the quarterbacks. No, the quarterback can do nothing without the defensive end, the front line, the, the receivers, the, the tight ends. He can't do anything. He's useless without everybody else. And the fivefold ministries are useless without the ministry of helps. They're useless without the marketplace ministers. They're useless without other people in the body doing their job. So if you don't know what your ministry is, you can start off by understanding it is ministry of helps. It is helping in the local church. It's serving. It's bearing one another's burdens. And if you'll do that, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. And if you fulfill the law of Christ, promotion and peace belongs to you. The Bible tells us that, there are, that many are called, but only a few are ever chosen. A ministry calling is nothing but an invitation to come up higher. Isn't that cool? You get born again, which is the best invitation in the world. And then when you're born again you recognize there's another calling to come up a little higher. And don't just go to heaven, but serve the body of Christ. Serve mankind before you go up heaven, up high to heaven. Every invitation, every spoken word of God is a calling up higher. 
God is on high. He is seated on high. And every time he speaks to us, whether it's a correction or rebuke, it's a calling up higher. And you and I have to answer that invitation. He's phoning everybody. He's texting everybody, if we could say it that way. He's calling everybody, inviting everybody, but not everybody's going to receive that call and answer it and be chosen to come up higher. And that really has got to be a sad thing. It's almost like the Lord has a large family and not all of his kids are going to cause him to be proud. I want to make sure that we as a church make the Lord proud. I want to make sure that you make the Lord proud. And you ought to make sure you want to make the Lord proud. If you have a lot of kids, you might look at some of your kids, and there are some kids you're a little bit more proud of than others because of the choices they make. We want to make sure the choices we make make the Lord proud, and we answer the call up higher. It's an invitation to train harder and run faster than the average Christian will ever dream. Fortunately, many Christians are called, uh, who are called only talk about their calling. We don't want to just talk about it. Talk is cheap. Put up, shut up. We want to fulfill the call. Be the best helps minister. If you're back there in bed babies, pray all Saturday about being back there with bed babies to hold those babies, to pray over them. Lord, anoint me to hold those babies so they know the presence of God. And if there's any sickness trying to talk to them, let it just go off of them because I'm holding them. That's coming up higher. That's, that's more than just being a warm body in a rocking chair holding somebody else's baby. And if you're going to mop the floor, then you say, Lord, anoint me to mop the floor. May I be the best mopper there ever was, and may my water be immune to dirt, and it just supernaturally dissipates. Be an anointed supernatural mopper. Why not? Amen. Please realize you can live and die and take your ministry invitation to heaven with you, and that is a scary thought. Gideon only had 1% that were called, that were actually chosen to be with him. 32,000 men. And only 300 became his, 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 his warriors. That's 1% of called being chosen. David had 600 men. Only 37 of them were mighty men of valor. That's 6%. In uh, Mark 4, the sower sows the word. Only 8% of those that hear the word produce a hundredfold return on the message they heard. So you see that the calling versus the choosing is a very, very low percentage. Many are called. That might be 100. Few are chosen. 8%. Many are called, 600, few are chosen, 37. Many are called, 32,000, few are chosen, 300. So your heart has to say, well, I'm going to be part of that slim majority, a minority. Your heart can't say like Possum Holler, well, then what's the point of even trying? What's the point? It is, uh, I mean, what are the odds? I mean, I don't even know the math on it, but uh, um, 6%, that's, well, that's what I got in grade school. Uh, that's not very good. I don't have good odds. I don't even reckon I'll try. You got to at least try. Don't take the easy route out. A ministry invitation does not fulfill itself. Samson had a ministry calling. It did not fulfill itself. He had bursts of spectacular miracle power, but he had no character or drive to actually do what he was called to do. He only took advantage of one of the aspects of his calling, which was to fight. And a lot of the fights you see him do are for personal gain. But you never see Gideon lead, or excuse me, Samson lead anybody. You never see him have a troop of men around him. You never see him sit in judgment and make decisions. All he ever did was learn how to use one aspect of his life, of his calling, which was pick a fight. And he got good at it. And he, he got good at the one thing uh, that he, didn't help him. He did not develop his character. He did not de develop, uh, develop his discipline. He did not develop his walk with God. You only see him pray to God twice. And both times he was in a pinch. Both times he was at death's door. Sounds like a lot of Christians who only cry out to God when the chips are down. 
He prayed and sought God when he was dehydrated after killing a thousand men with a donkey jawbone and the Lord miraculously gave him water. And then he prayed again when he was chained between two pillars like a slave. Both times he was on death's door, both times God answered him. What if he'd have prayed to God every day? How much quicker could he have come along? A ministry calling, a ministry invitation does not fulfill itself. We have the ministry of helps around here. We had training yesterday. And uh, there were some folks signed up who want to be a part of what we do, but they didn't even bother to show up for ministry training. Ministry does not fulfill itself. Your calling does not fulfill itself. I have a couple quotes here. Pastor Aaron of Iceland, he pastors um, the largest Pentecostal church in Iceland, Philadelphia Church. He said, how can you tell if someone is really called to the ministry? Look to see what they are currently doing. That's how you tell. If they're really called, they're really doing and the bigger they're called, the bigger they're doing. If they're not doing much, they're not called much. Dr. Barclay says 70% of leadership is leading yourself. If you can't lead yourself, you're never going to lead anybody else. And ministry calling is a lot more than just knowing the word and working out doctrine. You should know the word. I, I would hope every one of you studies your Bible, that every one of you works out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that every one of you judges yourself and judges your lifestyle. But that doesn't mop the floors. That doesn't pray for the sick. That doesn't serve in the local church. That doesn't uh, start a business and grow a massive business that puts money into the gospel. That's marketplace ministry. That doesn't fulfill the calling of pastor or missionary. That's just studying the Bible. To be a ministry leader in the kingdom of God requires that your total life be an epistle the believers can read and emulate. And so we're going to look at these next three lessons, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and all these qualifications for bishops and elders, or excuse me, elders and deacons, and we're going to see three areas that you have to master. One of them is personal life, one of them is family, one of them is money. And if you can't master those, and this is for just basic Christianity, if you can't master yourself, your family, or your money, you will live and die as a mere mortal. That's what Paul said to the Corinthian church in chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. He said, one translation, I wanted to speak unto you as spiritual, but I couldn't. I have to talk to you as mere mortals. So I like that translation because it kind of infers that we're not supposed to live as mere mortals. We're supposed to live spiritual. Now, we have a mere mortality. We eat food. We know we have to bathe. We have to drive a car. But we're spiritual on top of all of that. Your life needs to be an epistle. Every person around you can read and follow if they want to. It is cliche, but they say you're the only Jesus some people will ever see. And, and at the same time, you'll be the only epistle some people will ever take the time to read. And I want you to know that if you serve God, if you're born again, and if you love God, there's an anointing and a, and a presence of God on you that will convict your coworker and your neighbor, and they won't be able to put their finger on it, and you won't even know it's happening. But you continue to systematically do your thing, your Christian thing. You live as an epistle, and you will begin to disciple them by your mere lifestyle. And at this point, talk is cheap. I've got several neighbors that are total pagans. I don't talk to them about Jesus at all. I just love on them. I be a good neighbor to them. They know who I am. They know what I do. They know my church. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not preaching to them. I'm not doing anything because I'm living it out in front of them. I've already smelled them out. I know exactly where they're at. And for me to be their neighbor and invite them to church constantly, where we're at right now is not going to help. I'm just going to live it in front of them. Now, Lydia did go to our neighbor and say, I'm going to, uh, oh, 
she kind of spilled the beans. She told uh, our neighbor, uh, whose little boy she's friends with, she said, my mommy said, we're inviting you and your uh, son to Sunday school or to a vacation Bible school because you need to come to church. <laughs> and I'm standing right there. Huh? Did you guys have a good birthday party the other day? <laughs> That's not how I'm operating this one. This mission runs a little different. Stop evangelizing, Lydia. <laughs> We want to be epistles everybody can read and follow. Critical self-examination questions. I love throwing these out at us so we can examine ourselves. Would it be good for every Christian to be just like you? This is your self-evaluating. What if every Christian in the body of Christ was you? What would the body of Christ, would the overall flavor of the body of Christ go up, go down, or go crazy? <laughs> or just go away? Would it be good for every Christian to be as passionate as I, as you? Is your passion level something that people should aspire to, or are you trying to find someone who's passionate to follow after? Would it be good for every Christian to be as holy as you? Would it be good for every Christian to be as disciplined as you? Would it be good for every Christian to be as faithful as you? These are self-examination questions. Would it be good for every marriage to be just like yours? Is your marriage uh, what Jesus Christ intended in the garden? Or is there some gaping holes that are lacking? Would it be good for every child in the kingdom to be like your children? And of course, the thing is, if, if you find no, 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 then this, these are areas you start to work on. You start to work on your passion level, your holiness, your discipline, your faithfulness, your marriage. You work on your parenting. If your kids are grown and they're not serving God, just no condemnation. Just say, Lord, forgive me. Let me see what I can do to help the next generation of families. If people were to follow your life, where would they end up? In ministry, serving God, or in obscurity? See, these are self-evaluation questions. Because around here, we want to be real with Jesus Christ. We're not here to blow seeker-friendly smoke. It's always purple. We're not here to blow that up your nose or anyplace else. We're here to get to the raw, real deal. Uh, we want truth. No truth like Holy Ghost truth when you're inspecting yourself and the Holy Spirit says, mm, that right there, fix that. Realize that when you are in leadership, you're automatically reproducing yourself and everyone following you. So if you're a husband, we'll say your family is a representative of you. If you're a parent, your children are representative of you. If you're a pastor, your flock is representative of you. If you're a boss, your employees are representative of you. Your business is representative of you. Um, if you're a department head, your department represents you. It's a reflection of you. Because whether you want to or not, you're leading. You can't turn it off. Somebody's always going to follow you. And so you want to make sure that you get in the Lord's help and you say, have mercy on everything under me. You are the filter that things flow through and you water everything underneath you. So... It may be that the Lord is doing himself and you a favor by keeping you out of full-time ministry leadership. It may be that he is doing that. He's helping himself and the body and you by not promoting you into any kind of greater step up. But that doesn't mean you don't stop aiming for it. You just say, Lord, all right, show me what to fix. Everything in the world that is elite and praiseworthy has criteria that you have to qualify for. Olympic teams, football teams, varsity teams, certain universities. They were just telling me, I, I, this made me proud. They were, they were um, 
Somebody was, I was having a conversation this week. Or maybe it was Mr. Darrell was telling me, Tennessee Tech hovers around 12 or 13,000 students. And they said, if they reduce their academic standards, we could become like MTSU and all of a sudden blow up to 25 and 30,000. Well, Cookville couldn't handle that. So I said, Lord, in my heart, let Tennessee Tech keep raising the standard. Let's reduce the numbers a little bit. Cookville's a little too crowded for me right now. But academic, you know, Tech has a high standard, but not like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Cambridge, schools we've never heard of in other places. Everything worth striving for has criteria and benchmarks, and you and I ought to aim for them. Possum Holler just says, well, I got some soda pop and a hound dog and a four-wheeler. What else is there? <laughs> well, there's a lot more than soda pop, <laughs> a hound dog and a four-wheeler. There's God, and we ought to strive for it. If you want your soda pop, that's fine. If you want your hound dog, that's cool. Four-wheeler, hey, but go for more. Three areas of re- required mastery. First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 gives us the famous list of bishop elder requirements. This list of 17 requirements can be broken down into three categories as follows. Self-mastery, family mastery, and money mastery. All 17 requirements fall into those three categories. There's nothing more, nothing less. Because those, those uh, lists there are for raising up leaders. And I will quote Dr. Barclay here. Shame on any one of you that don't want to be a leader in the house of God. Shame on any one of you that's just comfortable warming a chair and being part of a local body. That's great, but shame on anybody that doesn't want more leadership responsibility in this kingdom. Every one of you, I would gladly make a deacon. I would gladly make an elder if you wanted it and you qualified for it. There's nothing to say we can't be top-heavy and have 100 deacons around here or have 100 elders. I mean, that would be a sign of maturity. My job is to raise up believers to be mature. But some Christians will never desire that. They'll just be happy. They don't want the burden. They don't want the inconvenience. They're just happy living in middle-class Christian America and retiring, gardening, watching Opie Griffith and dying and going to heaven. That's Opie Cunningham. Little Opie Cunningham. That's, that's an old joke. Never mind. That's Ron Howard as a boy between Happy Days and the Andy Griffith Show. So the bulk of this lesson is going to be talk about self-mastery, and we're going to look at some definitions here. A lot to cover, so we'll have to move quick. First Timothy requires you as a Christian in mastering yourself, number one, to be blameless. And I've got the Greek words here. We won't bother to quote those, but they're there in the lesson. This means, blameless means you cannot be laid hold of. You're above reproach. As a Christian, you ought to be able to be above reproach. I got so many stories running through my mind. There was a local youth pastor who um, was getting in trouble because he was taking his youth to like pagan concerts in Nashville because he thought that was cool. And they finally busted him going down to one of the uh, gas stations and buying beer every night, like a six pack or a 12 pack. And uh, he got busted. This is a local youth pastor a couple years ago. He got busted because the guy that owned the the grocery store, the, the gas station, went to one of the local churches, was on a leadership board. They happened to be at a local church meeting with a bunch of leaders And the gas station owner asks his pastor, who's that guy over there? He said, well, that's the youth leader at this church. He says, really? Do they have a drinking policy at their church? Because he comes into my gas station every night and buys beer, like 12-pack, 24-pack. He said, are you sure? Yeah, we'll set the camera up if you want. It busted him, fired the guy. Above reproach, which means you stay away from alcohol. Vigilant, this means sober-minded, 
Calm and collected in attitude, temperate, clear-headed, free from rash, confused, or fanatical thinking. Think about that, free from rash or confused thinking. Capable of sound judgment, avoiding sins of excess, therefore restrained. It's a good word. America doesn't know that word because America is lawless and lacks moderation. Everything in America is aimed to cater to your flesh. There's a giant spiritual conspiracy. Our culture has moved to a place where it is designed to make your flesh king over your life. You can go to Walmart and supersize anything and get it for discount prices. You can have anything instantly accessed to you. You don't need patience. You can drink all the Coke you want because it's now diet and calorie free. So you don't have to have any restraint. You can now, you don't have to wait for your television show every uh, seven days to come on. You can stream and binge watch the whole season in one sitting. If you want to save, you don't have to save money. Put it on a credit card at 19.5% interest and pay for it for 32 years. Everything in our culture, this is what wealth does. It gets you so you don't have to restrain your flesh. You can just let your flesh be king. And yet these requirements say of leaders, your flesh cannot be king. Because one of the aims of the kingdom of God is to make Jesus Christ king and teach everybody how to restrain their flesh and be spiritual. When you live according to the American culture, you're a mere mortal. When you live according to the kingdom, you become spiritual. Your next word is sober. This means serious. In one's senses, curbing one's desires and impulses, self-control. There's two words that are saying the same thing with slightly different flavors. Vigilant, which is self-restraint, and sober, which is self-control. Desiring what you should, as you should, when you should. Also translated temperate. Discreet, wise control of every thought and instinct. I like that. Wise control of every thought and instinct. You might be a skinny mini, but you could be just a weirdo in your head. You, you know, you might be obese. You might be very disciplined in your mind, but obese in your flesh. These, these requirements require leaders to be disciplined and in control of every aspect of their life. They're not control freaks. They're just disciplined. When we talk about self-mastery, we talk about you're in control. You're in charge as the Holy Spirit wants things done. Every one of us could be a little more disciplined. We could be a little bit more self-controlled. We're not talking about being so strict, you know, you can't have any fun, but that's not the ditch we're in right now. We're in the other ditch where we're having so much fun, we don't have any discipline. We need to be tightening this thing up. Poverty is a result of no self-control. Poverty is a, is a result of no discipline. So we have to resist that. Sober. That's the one where the Greeks said uh, the, the sober man, the sophron man, desires what he should, when he should, as he should. Of good behavior, that is our word cosmion or cosmos, cosmotic. It's where we get the word cosmos in cosmology, not cosmetology. That's makeup and hair salon. Cosmology is the study of the cosmos. But that means organized, good behavior. Everything is structured and disciplined. Having a well-arranged life, respectable, honorable. One who disciplines himself and who may thus be regarded as genuinely moral and respectable. Notice as a Christian, you ought to be genuinely respectable in society. Even the pagans should respect you. I, I got to just say this. I was listening to King of Kings net, uh, radio network yesterday. I usually don't, but my other two stations were gone for some reason. I thought maybe my radio was broken, so then I started scanning. And I hit upon gospel bluegrass. I love bluegrass music, and I was listening to some of it, and I enjoy ma- banjo and mandolin. And, you know, it's twangy. I mean, it's, it's Sparta twangy, gospel bluegrass. But the lyrics were firing me up. And this one song was, Sin, uh, hide, hide, sinner, where are you going to hide? 
And I thought, man, sing it, buddy. Hide, hide, sinner, where are you going to hide? When God comes for you, where are you going to hide? Hide, hide, sinner, where are you going to hide? When the Lord comes back, where are you going to hide? And then where are you going to hide from his grace? I mean, it was, it was awesome. And then later on, there was this preacher on there, and he was preaching out of the Revelation. Man, he was preaching with all of his gusto to the radio. It put such a boldness and a tremendous fire in me. And I thought, people don't preach like this anymore. People want to be all funny. People want to be all trendy. People want to be all, you know, pop culture-y. People want to be all encouraging all the time. But I listen to those guys. It puts nothing in me. I listen to this country preacher wear out the book of Revelation, talk about people refusing to repent, and it puts such a fire in me. I was like, amen, that's good preaching, man. And then I was bummed out because I only caught five minutes of them. And I got to thinking, that's your old classic preacher who the whole town respected. He'd preach fire and then give you a big hug when he was done. And I thought, we need more people like that. You could tell, or an organized life. He had his notes, you could tell in front of him. Had a heart for the lost and just kept talking about being born again and getting right with God and not walking through the revelation and going to hell. Cosmotic, an organized life that can be regarded generally moral and respectable. It means to have one's life in good order, ordered, organized, and arranged. You look at the cosmos, you look at the stars, just Google search cosmos images and you'll see how organized God made the creation. And, and the scientists set the atomic clock by the movement of the stars because that's how organized the cosmos is. To the you know, millionth of a second, the cosmos ticks. And we, you know, we can't make church on time. We can't make work on time. We can't pick up our clothes four days in a row. You know, you got more French fries in the bottom of your floorboard than you do in your McDonald's cup because you don't ever clean your car out. You know, don't clean your bathroom. There's a dead cat full of hair in your sink because you never, you know, <laughs> you got two sinks. That one clogged up three years ago, so I'm just using this one now. <laughs> Get some liquid plumber. Call a plumber. You know, this is what the Bible says. If you're going to be in any kind of leadership God wants to promote, your life has to be worth following. You can't be afraid to clean up after yourself. It's not Bible, but it is Southern. Cleanliness is next to godliness. <laughs> and if you're not clean, you may not be godly. Yeah, honestly. You know, when you get demon-possessed people, they're often not very clean. The Gadarene demoniac, nasty, buck-naked, dirty, filthy, cutting himself in chains, living in the tombs. Some of your house looks like a tomb. Clean that thing up. Don't pay somebody to do it. Do it yourself. It'd be good for you. We used to have a maid when I was growing up until my dad, my mom found out she was good looking and she got fired real quick. <laughs> she just called the maid service because my parents were working so much. This is in Seattle. And uh, I remember coming home from high school and she was a college kid. I come home and open and there's a maid. I went, whoa. Wow, she's pretty. We got the prettiest maid in the whole world. She just kind of vacuumed and straightened up. And, and dad liked her, you know, because she's pretty. You know, nothing inappropriate there, but he could appreciate it. And then mama found out. I said, mama, did you see how pretty that maid is? No, she's pretty. She never came back again. <laughs> never again was she back. What's the biggest, ugliest one you got? 23618, 123rd Place Southeast, Kent, Washington, 98031. Thank you. That's my address from 23 years ago, 20, 27 years ago. That's a good mama's right. Hospitable. You ought to be hospitable. Philo uh, xenon, which means you love strangers, the Greek word. Philo xenon, you love the stranger. 
You open your house to anybody, everybody. We can't even get some folks to open up their house to church family, much less a total stranger. Hospitable, literally brotherly love towards strangers or guests. A fondness for and a natural desire to serve the needs of others. Not just have your needs served, but go serve somebody else. Apt to teach. This just means you're skillful in teaching. You know, I I know one of my gifts, probably my greatest strength is the ability to teach. You don't have to be anointed as a teacher to be apt to teach. Every one of you can teach your kids. Every one of you can take a simple gospel message and teach a total stranger how God died for them. You don't have to be this, this, you know, 35 books, 14 languages, Revelation tied from Genesis, Exodus, hopping over, hitting it, Nehemiah, and wrapping it up there in the book of Jude. You don't have to be that level of teacher. You just have to be good at teaching somebody how to go to heaven. It's pretty easy. Not given to wine. There's one. Not given to wine. Literally, one who stays near wine. That's what the Greek word says. You, you stay near wine. In this culture, in this society, this society doesn't know moderation at all. Now, there's all, there's all the debates about, well, what about wine? Jesus turned water into wine. A lot of arguments for that and that the water back then was not safe to drink. Alcohol, by, uh, by nature, alcohol kills stuff. But at the same time, their culture was not such to always be imbibed. In America, you don't find people that just healthily drink. Folks who start drinking in this nation, the spirit pushes them over the brink, the demon spirit, and they become uh, substance abusers. Well, I need it to unwind. You don't have the Holy Spirit? What about the new wine? Well, I need it to relax. You, don't, you can't pray in tongues? You can't read scripture out loud? That's a cop-out. You're an alcoholic. Well, well Paul told Timothy. What, did, he have, did Timothy have tums? He said, take it for your off-stomach infirmity. Did he have malox? Did he have malarium? Did he have any of the prescription drug we can have? See, these, these are cop-outs. This says one who's always making an excuse to draw near to wine. Oh, how about this excuse? Paul said, if hamburger meat causes my brother to offend, I'll not touch meat as long as the earth stands. In this nation, alcohol is an extreme offense. And therefore, we could insert that there in Romans and Corinthians. If alcohol causes my brother to offend, I will not touch alcohol as long as the earth stands. Now, my personal judgment, and I have preacher friends that would disagree with me, nothing that goes in a man defiles him. It goes out. King James says it goes out with the draught. It, you urinate it out, you defecate it out. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. I've been on some drugs that the doctors prescribed that the pimp on the side of the street would give money for. And it was totally legal. It didn't defile me. It was trying to help me. Alcohol can be used as a medicine. But when you got medicine, you're not looking for alcohol to be a medicine. You're looking for an excuse to be a drunkard. And you, you've got an addictive personality that you don't even need to flirt with. Uh, you'd be wise to stay away from it. In this nation, this nation takes everything and pushes it to the extreme. And so um, one that draws near to wine, says you can't be one that draws near to wine. Always looking for an excuse to get it in your household some way. If it causes a baby to stumble, don't do it. Don't have it anywhere near you. It's not worth it. Hence an addict, a drunkard, also defined as the abusiveness and brawling associated with a drunkard. <laughs> how, many, how many associations do we have in America against drunks? Mad, sad, you know, students against drunk driving, mothers against drunk driving. Nothing good comes of alcohol except maybe to clean scalpels before you do surgery in the Civil War. But we're not in the Civil War. It's not 1864 anymore. So what we're really dealing with is a bunch of Christians that are trying to make an excuse to have alcohol in their house because they're selfish. I like the way it tastes. Find something better. Amen. No strike. It's all quiet. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. Just trying to keep you out of Teen Challenge. Amen. I mean, really. You know, if you don't play with radiation, you don't get radiation sickness. I, I, I mean, I, I used to be um, licensed in, in radiation and had to go through all sorts of federal training because I dealt with radiation and worked out at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Uh, you know, if you're never around radiation, you don't have to worry about getting doses of radiation. And you never know without someone telling you from the radiological laboratory how much you've been exposed to and at what point you crossed your threshold. And yet we respect radiation, but we think we can foolishly handle alcohol or opiates or opioids or narcotics. You can't even get yourself to church on time. You can't even pay your tithe on a regular basis. You can't even put a knife to your throat and lose some weight. And you think you can handle alcohol? You are deceived. Amen, amen, amen. All right. Deal with that as you want to. I've got to move on now. We've got more bullet points. We have found a little hiccup in my get-along. I'll deal with that more next service. <laughs> no striker. Pugnacious. Contentious, quarrelsome, eager to fight, a fierce or violent man. We don't have that in our church anymore. When I was here in the 90s, we had a whole bunch of folks that they were always stirring up strife, picking fights, quarreling, bickering. I mean, you'd almost, you almost have a fight in the bathroom or the ladies' bathroom. We had some rough rapscallions around here, which is okay as long as they're baby Christians. But you hang around the body of Christ 10 years and you still want to fight in the ladies' restroom, you're nuts. You're nuts. And you have no place in leadership, so go away. And they did. They left. Patient. We're talking about the requirements of growing up. This is what the Lord wants you to master in your life. These are the requirements he wants us to, or the characteristics he's looking for in our life. He wants us to have these. He wants us to be patient. He wants us to not draw near to wine. He wants us to not be a fighter. He wants us to be patient. That's our word sweet reasonableness. We have a whole lesson on that in our helps curriculum. Open to reason. Some people are just unreasonable. Love, the true biblical kind of love, wants to give people the benefit of the doubt and will not jump to conclusions until they've made full discovery and asked all the right questions. That's sweet reasonableness. That is this word patience here. Full of mercy, gentle toleration for others in spite of having justification for intolerance. You're willing to cut people the benefit of the doubt. You're willing, you're willing to realize that maybe they're having a bad day, a bad week. Maybe this is just a blind spot in their life. We often are so quick to cut people off, it's really, it's really quite shameful over one disagreement, one misunderstanding. We won't stick together for the hundred things we have in common, the hundred things we've done to help each other. We'll cut ties over one. I'm so glad Velcro doesn't give up when one little hook comes undone. Well, that's it. And you, man, my shoes would have fallen off till I was 15. <laughs> Some of you still wear Velcro shoes. I'm so glad Velcro says, well, we, got, we lost one little hook. We got 15,000 more. Amen. Would to God our hearts were more like Velcro with one another. And somebody starts to come unfringed on one edge. No problem. We got the whole rest of us stuck together. Amen. Not a brawler. Literally no contention. No engaging of war of words or opinions. Whew. I don't care about your opinion. It doesn't do you any good. Find the Bible, live the Bible, preach the Bible. No, we're not going to get into a fight of opinion. Not needing to fight due to overwhelming strength. You're so strong, there's no sense in fighting. There's no sense in proving your point. You just, just wink at ignorance. 
All right, just tolerate. We, we've lost the words in our society, gentlemen and ladies. Gentlemen is someone who can, can endure somebody else's weaknesses and still respect them and accommodate them because a gentleman is the bigger man. He's a gentle man. He's able to get around rough people and still act respectably. And a lady, it's not a female. A lady is a female that carries herself with class and poise and makes other people feel important. Gentlemen, makes, gentlemen make people feel important despite their maybe lower class in life, and ladies make people feel important. Now, America doesn't know much about gentlemen and ladies anymore because all we know about is making us feel important, as is evidenced by social media. It's all about us. Look at me, look at me, look at me. But real gentlemen and real ladies, they try to make everybody else feel important, even when those people know they're not important. They love on them. They reach out to them. They encourage them. They don't have to correct them on anything. We really got to see a lot of that with the Convoy of Hope thing we did. That was, that's probably the best example I've seen lately of people acting like ladies and gentlemen. People coming in, pierced up, tattooed up, smelling like meth, smelling like pot, smelling like poverty. And yet you sat there and you didn't even correct anything in their life. Though we're there for the gospel. You were there making them feel important, showing them their life was important to Jesus Christ. That was a pretty good demonstration of acting like ladies and gentlemen. Our society used to have a master's degree in that. We can't even spell GED in it now because we're so selfish. Not a novice. Now to be in leadership, you got to hurry up and grow up. Novice means is neophyte, a newly planted one, a new believer, a new church member. We don't put anybody in leadership who we don't know. I got a resume a week or two ago from a, a minister. And I, this is just so foreign to my mind. I, I'm just not in this part of church culture. There is a church culture that says we hire people on resumes for, for, for positions. I, I, don't, I really can't grasp that. So this, this guy's a minister. He'd been a missionary for two or three years teaching English in another country. He'd been on staff at other churches, and they moved to Cookful, and he was sending his resumes out, and he, he, you know, he had a list of his, what his spiritual gifts were and what his spiritual strengths were, and he's wanting to be hired on staff here. You don't know who we are, sir. You don't know our history. You don't know our verbiage. You don't know what we do. You don't even know our calling. You're just looking to do ministry for a paycheck. Now, he might have a good heart. I don't know, but... I'm not going to promote any neophyte. He would be a newly planted member of this church. He doesn't know you. You don't know him. Plus, we don't have the money or the need for him right now. We're, we got money going to this education wing. But biblically, I can't just hire a, a stranger. I cannot make an elder out of a newly planted member because they know nothing. They don't have our heart. They don't have our vision. They haven't been trained by us. This is not a secular job. This is kingdom ministry. But there are a lot of churches that do that their deal, not mine. They violate, I believe, this verse. They promote to leadership newly planted people. They bring them in from another church and uh, they wonder why it doesn't work out 50% of the time. Because they're a neophyte. They're newly planted in that church. They don't know anything about the past. They don't know anything about the vision. They don't know anything about the struggles. They don't even know anything about the families and the inner turmoil, the inner workings. So this is, this is a wise word from God. You don't promote newly planted people. You have to let them put down roots take up the flavor of the soil, the flavor of the water, begin to bear fruit. You know, apples and oranges and fruit taste differently based on where they're being grown because they're being affected by the regional soil, rain, climate, atmosphere, insects. You know, honey tastes different from place to place. And so do Christians and so do churches. And it's all honey. So, of good reputation, good outside reputation, that just simply means you have a beautiful testimony. These are all criteria the Lord wants to see in our life. 
We are all supposed to desire leadership and responsibility in the kingdom. And woe unto us, shame on us, if we don't want higher than what we have in a local church or in the kingdom right now. God is calling you. It's an invitation to step up higher. Set your sights a little higher. Set your sights a little further. Don't just exist. Some of your problems, your petty problems would go away if you'd set your faith on something bigger than just your petty problem. Titus requirements, not self-willed. That means self-pleasing, overbearing, arrogant, seeking your own pleasure, concerned only with your own interests. That's what the Greek word means, not self-willed. You gotta be concerned with more than just your little address, your little apartment, your little house, your little whatever. You gotta be selfless. Not soon angry. That means you possess a temple, I don't, a temper. I don't know if anybody here really is a short temper. Again, in the 90s, we had a lot of short-tempered people around here. It was like a minefield. Some of those were college students. I, I stepped on them all the time. It, it's kind of fun. Then I learned what I was doing, and I do it on purpose, and then I got in trouble with the Lord. One, one of my roommates, he got so mad. You've heard my peanut butter story. He, I, I got home. We, we had our shelves divvied up. And uh, so all my food was on the shelf. My other roommate, all his food was on another shelf. And then third roommate. So I got home and uh, I, was, I was hungry and there was some peanut butter on the roommate's shelf. So I, I took the rest of his peanut butter. Well, you know, what are the odds that he drives home and that's all he can wait to do is get home and get that peanut butter. <laughs> now we'd had a couple blow-ins and blow-ups and he always ended up having to come back and repent to me because I would just take it. I would just be the whipping boy. And um, he got home and he went there and I was watching television. And he goes to the pantry. He said, what happened to my peanut butter? Who took my peanut butter? I said, oh man, I, I'm so sorry. I just, I ate that 30 minutes ago, an hour ago. He said, and he just went off. I mean, he went, he went North Korea on the thing. He went just <laughs> atomic. He said, I have been driving all day, looking forward to coming home and getting that peanut butter, putting it on those crackers. And I said, look, man, I'm sorry. I'll go buy you more. And he got in my face, he blew up, and I said, why are you blowing up? You know you're just going to have to repent to me later. And uh, that pushed him even further over the edge. And I kept a perfectly cool calm, and it did. It caused him to go even, he went like North Korea and Russia and China combined <laughs> with a little bit of ISIS sprinkled in there. He just went off the hook, and I got in trouble for it with the Lord because I provoked him. <laughs> That guy had a temper. So what I did, I said, I'm so sorry. So I went to Walmart that night and I bought him the biggest thing of peanut butter I could find. That's a lot of money for a college kid who's making like 575 at the car pool over at Tech. That's where I was working at the time at the carpool, washing the cars for Tech. I went, you know, it was like $15. It was a five gallon tub. It was Mormon family size peanut butter. And I brought it back to smother him with kindness and heap coals upon his head. He went atomic again because he... He thought I was doing it spitefully. It might have been a little bit of spite in there, but like we can feed the entire complex with this peanut butter. Just be happy. He blew up on me again. Yeah, he was never in much leadership. Short temper. Chill out, man. Be thankful I bought you all that peanut butter. Lover of good. You love honorable things, not detestable, sick things. Just, that means righteous, upright, give respect to man and honor to God. Holy, we understand that. Disciplined. Used only in this place in the whole New Testament. In full control of yourself. Literally, in possession of power over yourself. America needs to hear that word chanted to them a thousand times a day. It would help our money. It would help our marriage. It would help our entertainment hobbies. It would help our our Facebook and our social media. It would help our entire life if we could look at that word in krate and work it in our life. 
in complete possession of power over yourself. Your body does nothing except you tell it to. Your mind goes nowhere except you permit it to. Your flesh, your heart wants nothing except you allow it to. And all that's dictated from the word. Wow. Titus. Incrate, discipline, master of your emotions, self-discipline, and exercising that discipline over others to have a firm grip on something. These are big words that are tall orders that every one of us must aspire to. But if the Lord is commanding us to do this, we're well able. This doesn't mean we'll make all this list tonight or even next month, but we can begin to use this list of 17 requirements as a checklist and begin to say, Lord, let me be blameless. Help me be vigilant. And whatever I've spoken this morning that's convicted you, that's where you start praying. That's what you start addressing now. It doesn't have to be all super technical. You could just simply say, Lord, I declare I'm more disciplined than I've ever been. Lord, help me be disciplined. Usually on the mornings that we work out, one of the things I pray is, Lord, help us walk in the fruit of self-control. Help us be disciplined as Christians. That's what we pray when we work out. Sometimes I pray it over our food. Lord, help us to be in self-control so we don't Get overweight eating the food God provided. Give us this day our daily bread and 16,000 more calories. No, don't pray that. Pray, Lord, give me this day our daily bread and help me walk in self-control. Begin with your life first and then you can lead others. So 70% of leadership is leading yourself, according to Dr. Barclay. This, this is a list of requirements that you need to be working on yourself first. For those of you that are kind of given over to the control freak thing and always wanting to correct others, don't correct anybody till you have this mastered in your life. Oh, physician, heal yourself first. You get these things working in your life, you will be a tremendous powerhouse for the kingdom of God. Self-control. There was one, two, uh, three, four words that basically implied self-control. Four out of 17. Basically, 25% of self-leadership is self-control. We can do it. We're well able. We have the Holy Ghost. Who needs to raise the dead when you can't raise yourself up first? Let's raise ourselves up and then we'll raise the dead. Amen. Father, we thank you for these lessons. Help us to master ourselves. We thank you for these three areas of ministry, mastery. May we perfect them and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.